Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. This is a podcast in which two readers read through every single Newberry Medal winning book, and then we talk about it. Uh, this time, we're talking about the 1948 winner, The 21 Balloons, by William Penn de Bois. Did I pronounce that right? Correct. Okay, yeah, all these French people. I don't know how to pronounce them. you got to learn to speak American. Well, he was American. you got to learn to turn his name American. <laughs> uh, at any rate, before we start, just a reminder that you can uh, contact us at uh, newburychronicles at gmail.com if you want to email us and let us know if we were wrong about something, uh, or maybe if you agreed with us. That would be nice, too. Any thoughts on that? No. Rebecca is holding up her drink and salute, but that's not good podcasting, uh, so I'll just describe it. Um, at any rate, Rebecca, why don't you tell us about uh, Mr. Penn de Bois? I will do that, but before I do that, I want to just make a note of some... Interesting information that we neglected in our last episode where we talked about Ruth Sawyer's roller skates and in the author bio. I'm not going to say who shared the author bio, but they left out this person that... I was the one who did the author bio. Ruth Sawyer's daughter, Ruth Sawyer's daughter, who was a children's librarian, married Robert McCloskey. Of... What? What would we know Robert McCloskey Make from? Make Way for Ducklings. Yes. Blueberries for Sal. Yes. That other one that you and your mom really liked that I've not read. Are you talking about Homer Price? Yes. Yeah, that one's more of a novel. Yes. So anyway. <coughs> that was important. I thought that was really exciting. I'm sure Ruth, I hope Ruth liked her son-in-law. I'm sure she liked that he, um was also a children's author. So I just wanted to include that because I thought that was really cool. Wait a minute. You, didn't you just say she married Robert McCloskey? No, her daughter did. Her, her daughter, daughter married, was a children's librarian. I'm sorry. And married Robert McCloskey. Look at all these people obsessed with literature. Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. In one family. Yeah. So let's move on to talking about another family with a lot of creative energy. This the guy's... Okay, this guy's Wikipedia page is full of um, people in his life that also have their own Wikipedia pages. There's just, this family is like the Alcott's in that they have all of this creative talent within their one family. So, um, we're not talking about, sorry, I had Robert McCloskey's name at the top, but that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about William Penn Dubois. He was born in Nutley, New Jersey in May of 1916. His ancestors had moved from France to New Orleans in 1738. Failed to naturalize. Failed to assimilate into our great nation. My gosh. Anyway, I hope y'all can, dear listeners, note the sarcasm in Michael's voice. Oh, no, I'm very prejudiced against the French. So his mother was a children's fashion designer. His father was an art critic and a painter. His older sister became a painter. His cousin was a famous costume and scenic designer and designed all these sets and costumes for a ton of Broadway shows. Um, he won a Tony, right? He won a Tony, and he also was in was involved in the production of Gypsy. What's he, Gypsy? It's a famous Broadway musical. Oh, okay. I've not seen it. Yeah, me neither. But anyway. This is the first time hearing about it. Okay, so um, he had another cousin who was a, a children's illustrator. 
Um, so anyway, a lot of talent in this one family, and we'll get more to who he married. But his family moved to France when he was eight, and then they returned to Nutley when he was 14, so he spent some of his childhood years in France. He was accepted by the Carnegie Technical School of Architecture, but <laughs> he had just, to kill time during a vacation, had written a book, and it sold, so he decided to pursue um, illustrating and uh, authoring wow. instead of going to college. What a, what a happy accident. I know, right? Just to kill time on vacation, I'm just going to write a book, and it sold. Um, he spent some time in his 20s in the Army, and he also worked as a correspondent for Yank magazine. He also edited... Yank? I don't know. It sounded like something from the Army. I didn't look it up. But that's oh, what probably it was like called. Yankee. I was yeah. thinking like Pole, and I was like, <laughs> what an interesting title. <laughs> he also edited... From Nutley, New Jersey. Yes. Yank magazine. <laughs> he also edited the camp newspaper and illustrated strategic maps for them. He illustrated a lot of books for his own, but also for many other authors, including Jules Verne and John Steinbeck. And his work is said to have been influenced strongly by Verne, which you noted when we were talking about it. Um, he was also one of the founding editors of the Paris Review and designed its Whoa, logo. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And he was runner-up for the Caldecott twice. Um, okay, and then he married Jane Michelle Boucher of Manhattan, who was the daughter of a famous artist named Louis Boucher. Um, he married her in 1943. They divorced in 1955, and then he married Willa Kim, who was a theatrical costume designer. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of artistic talent within this family. Um, and then he died on February 5th of 1993 of a stroke. In a France. A stroke of genius. He died in France. So. Wow. Anyway. I knew he didn't stick with the good old go. U.S. of A. There you go. Um, Talk that, about that, this book. That's yeah. all I got to say about him. So, so this book, The, the 21 Balloons, is, um, I think, a very relatable book It's for me. <laughs> um, first of all, it takes place in 1883, uh, a time period in which I am very intimately acquainted um, because I, too, am from 1883. Oh, my gosh. Not really. Um, but anyway, this, so this takes place in 1883. Um, so it's a period piece. And uh, it opens with this man is found, like, crash-landed in the Atlantic. He's been in a, in a, like, hot air balloon. Or it's not a hot air balloon. It's like a hydrogen balloon. Um, and... Uh, Everyone's like, who is this mysterious man? And they find out that he's this guy named William Waterman Sherman, um, which is an incredible name. Did you know William, that Penn Dubois' middle name was Sherman? Oh, really? Yes. Sorry. So he seemed to have deeply related to this novel as well. Um, but uh, once they figure out who he is, they realize, hey, this guy actually left uh, the West Coast from San Francisco in a balloon. And so he seems to have circumnavigated the globe and... Um, they ask him, like, well, what were you doing? And he's like, I will only tell my story to, hold on, what, tell my story to the Western American Explorers Club in San Francisco. And so they pick him up in New York City, uh, or, or put him in New York City once they pick him up from the ocean. And they're going to take him back to San Francisco. And then someone realizes, if we get him to San Francisco quickly enough, he'll beat the world record for having circumnavigated the globe because he only left, I don't remember how many days it was, but... 
it was not that many days for that time period. Uh, and so there, like, grows this whole media circus surrounding, we got to get this man to San Francisco as fast as possible. Um, and uh, also it's mysterious because we, like, don't know what his circumstances are. Um, and so, like, there, like, the first thing, it's like 20 or 30 pages of the book is, like, this kind of comic set piece in which, like, the whole United States seemingly is just, like, held in thrall by William Waterman Sherman and his mysterious balloon story, uh, and can they get him to San Francisco in time to, to like, you know, make a world record? And so there's all these, like, um, like uh, people start selling things related to balloons. This, like, waterman or watermelon seller, like, has, like, these watermelons that are, like, shaped like balloons, and, like... Um, the the president of the United States comes and talks with him and is like, are you sure you don't want to tell me what happened first? <laughs> and the guy's like, nope, I'm only telling it to the Western American Explorers Club. And um, it's like very, it's meant to be like very comedic and kind of like lightly poking fun at like the media and the sort of things that like uh, attract the attention of people, um, I guess in 1883, but also in present day uh, as well. Um, and so then finally he makes it to San Francisco, he has set a world record and, uh, he begins to tell his story and that kind of like enters the second phase of the book. And so, uh, this guy was a teacher. He was a school teacher. He taught arithmetic for 40 years. Um, but after a while, um, 40 years is a long time. After a while, it, it just got, it got tiresome for him and he retired, uh, because he said, uh, and this is a direct quote cause I, I, I love this quote. Um, and this is a part that I actually do unironically, um, relate. relate to. He said, 40 years of being surrounded by a classroom of healthy prankish students, 40 years of spitballs, 40 years of glue on my seat, sal hepetica, uh, in my inkwell, which by the way, that is a laxative. I don't know what they're doing putting it in his inkwell, but, uh, his inkwell was very regular. Um, <laughs> and then this is also continuing the quote, uh, and other devilish tricks, Long about the 36th year, I started yearning to be alone. And I'm impressed he made it 36 years because I am eight years into my teaching career and I long to be alone. And I think about retirement a lot. Um, but at any rate, he, uh, he retires. And apparently in 1883, an arithmetic teacher could make a lot of money because he seems to be pretty well off. Well off enough that he can build a whole house for himself and like in the style of like the movie Up, like basically float off in a balloon um, with this house attached to a balloon. Um, and his idea is like, he's going to stay in the air for, is it a whole year? Mm -hmm. I think he's going to stay in the air a whole year, just being by himself, like enjoying retirement. Um, and he's got all these like well, contraptions and at the, well, go ahead. I don't know if that was his goal in the beginning. It's definitely to take a leisurely trip. That he wanted to take a leisurely the trip. End. The book actually opens before all of this. The book actually opens on this little mini essay on how amazing balloons are. Right. Because you go up, you don't know where you're going to go. And so it's just this, like, lackadaisical, um, like, free-spirited way to travel. And so he leaves San Francisco on this balloon, and he's got all these books, and he's got all these contraptions that are in his house to, like, make it, like, cool um, so that he can, like, stay afloat for as long as he intends to. And uh, unfortunately, um, seagulls land on his balloon and like basically rip a hole in the balloon. And so he has to crash land in the Pacific and happens to crash land uh, near the island of uh, Krakatoa. And uh, that begins the third section of this book um, in which he finds out that uh, 
Krakatoa, this island, is inhabited. And it's inhabited not by, you know, uh, South Pacific natives or anything, but um, by a bunch of people from San Francisco, of all places. Um, and these San Franciscans, uh, there's 20 families on this island, and uh, they have all decided to move from this island because, like him, they kind of tired of modern life. And also, importantly, they've discovered these, island, these diamond mines on the island uh, that have made them fabulously rich. And so they've basically created this utopian society um, on this island. And um, the the section of the book is like basically like um, just a tour of the island. And um, every family has foregone their birth name and instead now just goes by a letter. So there's like the A family, the B family, like all the way through to the T family. That's the final one. And... Um, uh, they all have these fabulous houses that they've designed themselves because all the families who came to this island were either artists or scientists, and so they're all very, like, crafty. And um, they've all, like, done these, like, we some of them have done, like, these really bizarre inventions and, like, done experiments with electricity and stuff. And they've created a society on this island where everyone has a, a letter for name, and also no one wants to cook more than once a month. And so each person on the island owns a restaurant, that they've built, and they make a cuisine. Um, or that restaurant is themed on a cuisine that begins with that letter. So, like, the, the C family does Chinese food, and the T family does Turkish food, I believe. Um, and so all of the families rotate whose house they eat dinner at, and uh, so that way you don't have to cook but, like, once every 20 days. Um, as, as they're getting this tour... There keeps being these rumblings on the island, and um, William Waterman Sherman is like, hey, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, you know, there's a volcano on this island, but uh, don't worry, it's all cool, you know, like, we learned how to deal with it. Um, and then uh, this en enters the last section of the book, in which um, it turns out that's not all okay. Uh, in fact, Krakatoa is about to experience, like, one of the most severe and prolonged uh, volcanic activities um, in modern history. Uh, and this is like a real historical event, although I'm presuming there weren't a bunch of San Franciscan families on this island. Um, but uh, what ends up happening is that all this volcanic activity begins and it's really serious and they're going to, like the island's going to blow up. And so they have to like abandon their island and they have these emergency balloons that they're going to escape on. So they escape off the emergency balloons uh, right as the island is blowing up. And uh, then they float around Asia and Europe because they don't want to, they don't want people to know where they're coming from or whatever. They just want to kind of like, you know, sink back into obscurity in, in modern society since they can't have their island anymore. Um, and uh, uh, eventually they all start parachuting off, the, off the, their little escape balloons until all that's left is William Waterman Sherman, who is going to try to take the um, balloon back to America and then, like, almost makes it to America, but then lands in the Atlantic. And that kind of brings us to the present day. Um, and he's got a few diamond cufflinks to show that his story is real. Um, so that's the story. And tell, tell them what, um, what his goal is at the end of the book. Oh, he wants They're to build like, another what are you balloon. Do next? <laughs> he wants to build another balloon because he still wants to have his, like, retirement vacation. And he's just going to make... Um, like a seagull catcher or something mm -hmm. on it so that he can float his whole time. Mm -hmm. So um, 
you know, props to him. Like, I, I support his his goal of wanting to just read mm-hmm. and be left alone in a balloon. I can, I, I, I truly can relate to that. Yeah, I thought of you a lot when I was reading this. I was like, this is like Michael's dream. Maybe not a balloon, but, you know. The thing is, it would have to be a balloon for people not to bother me. Because right. if I'm on land. Which is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. That's true. People find you. So, um, this is the book. I've read this book before. I read it multiple mm-hmm. times as a child. I know my dad is a big fan of this oh, book. Oh, I didn't know you did multiple times. I think I read it multiple. I definitely read it at least once. I remember enjoying it. I didn't have strong memories of it, though, so this was... Mm-hmm. As I was reading it, I was being like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. Um, but uh, so I, I'm coming to this, you know, returning to it as an adult. But this is the first time you've mm-hmm. read it, right, Rebecca? Yes. So why don't you tell us what you thought? About I, I really liked this book. And Michael thought I was not going to like it. But I did. I thought it was really fun and funny. Um, I and also, we didn't, I don't think you talked about his illustrations. No, at but all they're good. Description. Yeah, so he illustrated um, this book throughout, and I I really like his illustrations. Um, I really liked the whole premise, the idea of a teacher. Our, my phone is listening to us. Sorry. Oh. Um, the NSA has got to make sure that we're not going to like commit terrorist acts with the balloon. Yeah, well, I'm going to talk about capitalism in a minute. So. Oh, good. It's not listening to that. Um, I like the idea of this teacher being so burnt out and teaching that he wants to take a leisurely trip um, on a balloon. Like, what I like about this book is that it's super bizarre, but it has plausible explanations for everything to where it's like, this never would have really happened, but you really go out of your way saying how it could happen. Like, and I think he does that well, and it's really funny. I love that he falls right into, like, the, the, the theme of, like, solidarity and, like, separation from all that has, like, gone wrong or is troublesome and it never really, like, happening, like, their plans keep getting thwarted, I think was um, pretty poignant without, like, hitting you on the nose. So, like, he has this idea of going in this balloon and having all this peace and quiet, a leisurely trip, has it all figured out, um, and then crashes and then falls right into this group of people who love their unbothered, non-busy life so much that they have to keep it all a secret. Um, I loved all the food. Well, well, they have to keep it a secret because they have a diamond mine. Exactly. But also because... But then if, if it wasn't a secret, their life wouldn't be unbothered anymore. And it wouldn't be unbusy. And it wouldn't be That's sustainable. True. That's true. So um, I, I loved all the food in the book and that they have... Their whole calendar is centered around what they're going to eat. I really um, that sounds like relate a, to that. The going in a balloon by myself sounds like something I would like. The the food, everybody, the food thing yeah. sounds like something that you it's, would do. It was beautiful. <laughs> Just having dinner with friends every night. Yeah, and you don't have to cook. You get to host and then take a long break before you host again, but still see your friends every day. These people seem kind of uptight, though, because they don't like Chinese food. They no, don't like... No, no. He doesn't like, William doesn't like Chinese food, and he gets chastised for it. Oh, you're right, because he, he's, yeah. like he's like childish. He's like the right. children. He's like the children. But anyway, um, this book seemed, in some ways, anti-capitalist. You noted that it was kind of anti-colonial. Uh, well, no. I, I, well, I'll get to that in a second. Okay, I don't think sorry. it's anti-colonial. Okay. But anyway... I um 
Yeah, I just think it's really funny that there's a singular San Franciscan man who goes up in a balloon and he falls on an abandoned island, what he thinks is abandoned, but it's filled with a group of San Franciscans who somehow know all the same people that he knows in San Francisco, like at Stars Hollow or something, some small town where they all know the same people. Um, yeah, and in fact, that so much so that he wants to hide that he was a teacher because yes. he doesn't want to... <laughs> Like, for people to, like, find out, like, who his pupils were or something like that. No, he doesn't want them to know he's a school teacher because then he thinks they'll make him the school teacher in their town. Oh, yeah. And make him teach all their kids. So he (laughs) keeps that a um, well-suppressed secret. So that's what I liked. I like a lot of the same things. Um, There's, like, some... Either as a kid, it didn't register to me as funny or... I just forgot that it was funny, but, like, this book is very funny. Like, all the stuff leading up to him arriving in San Francisco at the beginning of the book I thought was funny. Um, The whole, like, everyone's obsessed with balloons thing is funny to me, too. Um, And, like, the whole essay about balloons. Um, And then, like, on the island things are funny. Like, they don't make him take a letter of the alphabet as his name because the next letter of the alphabet is U. And they're like... Oh, it would be terrible if someone on the island was named you, because any, any, anytime anyone said, hey, you, you would turn around and never know if they're talking to you or someone else. Um, and there's, like, the book's, like, full of things like that that I thought were kind of, like, just, I don't know, just, just funny. I didn't remember this being a comedic novel. Um, I do like how it feels also like a Jules Verne novel. Like, um, they reference at the beginning of the book, uh, Around the World in 80 Days, um, when he's, like, trying to make his, you know, circumnavigating the globe world record and um i think that this book like definitely owes a lot to like not just jules verne but that kind of like era of like explorer like adventure fiction you know um where a lot of it is very implausible especially with the vantage point of the modern era and i think that like william penn dubois is very knowing about that because unlike jules verne he's not actually writing in the 1880s uh or or 18 you know, whenever um, Jules Verne was writing, he's writing, you know, with the vantage point of, like, over half a century later, you know, with, like, a lot of advances in technology. And so I I think, like, he's intentionally making the book, like, that kind of, like, set in the kind of world that would allow for these kind of, like, steampunk, like, Jules Verne type stuff, like, with balloons and, um, like, the island itself is very, like, um, silly because of, like, their experiments with electricity. Like, there's this one house in which they have one room of the house in which all the furniture was electrified. And so you could, instead of having to work to, like, push the furniture around, there were, like, little controls that they could, like, zip around, like, bumper cars, basically. Uh, And there's just, like, live electricity in the room just, like, crackling everywhere. Uh, And apparently only the kids like being in that room. Um, And it just all felt very, like, cozy in a way that it like reminded me of a lot of stuff I used to read when I was younger um and I like that in addition to it being funny um and I also think it's just kind of like it's just kind of fun like it's a very unpredictable book it's a book that is like constantly changing what it's about which is which is fun like at first it's like this whole like we got to get into San Francisco and then it's like here's what it's like to live in a in a house that's suspended by balloons and then it's like here's this island, and then it's like, here, we're going to go on this, like, utopian tour of this island, which another thing is, this reminds me of, like, utopian fiction mm-hmm. in that one section, in the sense that it's, like, lightly satiric, like, not re- it's not heavily satiric, but it's, like, lightly satiric and, like, knowingly ridiculous because this is a place that could never exist, 
Um, but it's also, um, you know, having fun with like, what if these kind of like, uh, aristocratic Americans had infinite wealth and could do whatever they want with it and had infinite leisure time. And in a way that's like, I don't know, there's something like almost like, this would not normally be a positive for me, but there's something almost like Ayn Randian about that, you know, in the sense of like, these like, people who clearly view themselves as better, better than society, like make their own society in which they don't have the shackles of, um, you know, uh, modern life and like their responsibilities to other people and to society. And in this book, I think it's fun because they don't do that to become businessmen like Ayn Rand would have indicated. You know, they don't do that to subjugate other people. Uh, they do it to like pursue like just pure creativity um, and like pure unbridled, um, you know, whimsy. Like, like, it's just an entire, like, the entire island is just built on whimsy, like, to do whatever you want. Um, and there's something kind of beautiful about that, like, you know, if, if you know, in the same way as Ayn Randian, it's almost like Karl Marxist, you know, each to their abilities, and, or whatever that Karl Marxist quote, you know. And that, that kind of, like, utopian vision of, like, if class were abolished, you know, what would life be like? And this kind of imagines something that I don't imagine Marx would do, which is, to imagine that everyone has infinite money, um, but uh, it is kind of like a fun thought experiment. To does anybody like ever get sick? Like, is there a doctor? I don't on know. The island. They don't. I don't feel like they mention it, and they get off of the island without being destroyed by the volcano. So I don't know if they ever yeah. need a doctor. They've not been there that long. Like, right. They've only been there a handful of years. Mm-hmm. Like, because like not all of their houses are finished and everything, mm-hmm. uh, and this. It's kind of funny because as soon as they finish explaining everything, the, the volcano goes off. And so it's like, right. even this utopian society, like, it it can't exist in the story. Well, and that's another thing I left out, too, is, like, right before the island blows up, like, before the, um, before the volcano erupts, um, William is telling all the people, I spent hours telling all the people about people in San Francisco. And you can tell that these families are lonely, like, or they miss that life. They miss the people. They're so enthralled hearing about the story. Like, so there is that piece of longing of like, oh, we have everything we could ever want here, but it's still, you know, they're missing something that, that longing is there and then everything blows up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, this book isn't really, like, that heavy on social commentary, but there's, like, these little threads that it, like, kind of drops every once in a while that are just kind of, like, like a lot of the things in the book, just kind of fun and interesting to think about, and it's not, like, very serious, but it's, like, just kind of there, you know, if you want to think about what it would be like to have infinite money, here you go. If you want to think about, like, whether or not that would actually, you know, you would actually be happy being, like, completely liberated from, like, social obligations, like, well, here you go. Um... Yeah, so I, 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 I liked it. You know, this mm-hmm. book holds up. I wasn't sure if it would hold up for me because it had been so long since I read it, and I only had, like, the vaguest memories of the concept of the book. Um, but um, there's a lot I liked about it. Um, is there anything you didn't like, Rebecca? You've got to get to the negatives. There's not really anything. I I did get bored at the really technical parts. Like, when he's explaining... 
know, there's just some parts where he gets very technical. Like, I was very bored. But technical in ways that are absurd. They're like... absolutely absurd, but I just don't care about them. Like, he was describing... Right. He was describing... Did you talk about the balloon ride? Oh, like the kids' balloon ride? Yes. Like, so they make their own, like, little amusement park ride? It sounds insane. It's like but on anyway, a corkscrew. They spent a lot of time describing all the mechanics of that and to where I was getting pretty lost. But what I did like is whenever I got to those parts where I would start to feel really lost, he would have an illustration there. Like, it was, like, perfect. Yeah, he has, like, diagrams and stuff. Yeah, so it's like, okay, I can see this. But I, I just didn't, like, care about those parts. But it's not, like... A critique that those were just the uninteresting but it is funny and it's kind of like again this is kind of like jules verne where like a jules verne book will describe in detail for like pages this like impossible technology right and like it's technology that you know will never work and so it's kind of funny that they even bother to describe that's it in what this i'm much saying detail. like that this book is so absurd and bizarre but it's like it's set around a real event in history and also like has which be, that takes, being the Krakatoa absolutely, uh, volcano that, of right? course yeah but like he then goes to so many depths to explain like how it could really happen like right. I, I don't know it's just he's very talented but that that's the only critique that I had I don't really have a ton of critiques either I do think that some parts work better than others it's funny like as a kid, I really liked all the stuff on the island, but I think as an adult, that was the part of the book that was, it wasn't uninteresting, but it was the least engaging part of the book for me, where it's like, here's another thing that we do on this island. Oh, here's another thing. Oh, did you see that our kids have a balloon ride that they made? And again, that's not bad, but I was surprised that as a kid, that was the most interesting part. And now it's like, the part that held my attention the least. Um, the other thing, and this is not exactly a critique, but it's something that I, ha I was reflecting on a lot reading this book, is that, like, a lot of the, like, adventure fiction of this, of the actual 1880s, you know, if, you know, the 19th century, if you go back and read it, at least the English language adventure fiction, is kind of set in the shadow or, or in, in some points, like, actively engaging with um, the British Empire or... Um, other kinds of colonialism, you know, whether that was, like, French or Belgian or, you know, whatever. Um, and one of the things that this book does that's kind of interesting and also kind of, it's a weird connection to have, and I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it, is that, like, the the whole, like, island, they're in the South Pacific, right? You know, this is, like, basically what we would refer to as Asia. I mean, it's not really Asia, but, you know, because it's, like, not mainland, but, like, it is not, quote-unquote, the West, right? It's not Europe. Um, you have these people who set out and settle it um, just like, you know, kind of an imperial venture would. Um, you know, you where you kind of start with the explorers and then you bring the settlers in and then you mine it for um, resources and you kind of set up your own society in this. But, like, you know, one of the ugly realities of colonialism is that most of the places that empires would go were already inhabited. And so doing all these things involved not just doing them innocently, but doing them in a way that, like, did awful things to the people who lived there uh, initially, like the, the indigenous people, um, whether that was, whatever, India or um, Africa, you know, places in Africa or um, whatever. And this book, like, has that 
dream of like we are people who are like kind of like European descent going to a new place where we can extract resources and build a new life that is unencumbered by you know the old life like that's kind of like the that was kind of like the colonial dream but in this book they do all that without the presence of there being indigenous people there's no this is an uninhabited island except for them and they don't have to like genocide or clear away or enslave anybody who's here and so like in a way like this book kind of presents like the the ideal of colonialism um and 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 creates this scenario where um it is so sanitized because of the the specific parameters of how it's set up that there's no possible way to find it a morally objectionable um but it's a fantasy and i don't know i it's I'm not this is not a fault in the book, but it's just like as an adult, like I recognize that that's the tradition that this book is engaging with is like the tradition of literature that had a bunch of colonialism tied up in it. Um, but this book invents a scenario in which none of the moral problems of colonialism are present. And so it's doing colonialism without colonialism. And that's I don't know, that's weird. Um but I think it's part of making a pastiche of like a different time period. You know, if, you know, if I were going to make a different, like a pastiche of, you know, older American fiction, you know, uh, what would I do with, you know, the kind of like inevitable, you know, tensions surrounding how race was depicted in those older books or things like that. And, um, this is kind of like an interesting solution in the sense of you just erase the people who were oppressed um, anyway, that's probably me overthinking this book and it's not exactly a negative, but it's something that made the book, gave the, gave me something to think about, gave me pause in a way that wasn't just like purely whimsical, like most of the book is. I don't know. I've gone on about this enough. I give it a thumbs up. Yeah. I say thumbs up. Twin and balloons is good. I'm glad you were wrong. You said I wasn't going to like it. I just... Maybe it was just I didn't it's I didn't unlike, think that you it's unlike, liked these kind of, right. this kind of l- literature. I might not have liked it when I was younger, but I probably would have still been interested in the story. But yeah. I I really enjoyed it. It was a good book. Right. So we're no longer a house divided. Last time was the first no. time we were in disagreement, and yep. now we're back on track. Um, okay. Our next book we're gonna. Read one that neither of us have read before. It's the 1957 winner. It's Virginia Sorensen's Miracles on Maple Hill, and we know nothing about this book. Nothing at all. In fact, uh, I keep calling it The Secret of the Maple Tree, <laughs> which is a terrible book from my childhood. That, that we both read in elementary school. From the homeschool curriculum, Abeka, I believe, right? Is it? Yeah. It was connected with that, right? Um, it's an Abeka book. Yeah. yeah, so... But I read it at my small Christian private school that used the Abeka curriculum. So, that is my only thought about this book, is that I keep, in my head, having these associations with this book that I hated. I'm sure up. it will be very different. It better be, because Secret of the Maple Tree is a bad book. And that's all I have to say about that. So... Any last thoughts, Rebecca? None. Okay, Well, I guess that'll wrap us up then. Uh, Thanks for listening. 
Um, remember, if you have feedback for us, you can send it to newberrychronicles at gmail.com, and uh, you'll get a message from me or Rebecca if you email us. It may not be a very important message, but we'll respond to you because we only get about one email per episode. Um, and also, please join our Patreon. I'm just kidding. Man, I'm I wish, to be, I wish I'm trying to be a real podcast. That's right. Uh, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. For just a dollar fifty a month, you'll get exclusive interviews with me and Michael. That's right. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, one of these days will be a real podcast. We still don't have intro music. Yeah, we're working on it. Stay tuned. One day you may find yourself listening to a real podcast as you turn into tune into the Newberry Chronicles. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks for listening again. Goodbye.